This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cavanagh's Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cavanagh. The Jason Cavanagh's Experience is brought to you by Cavanagh's HR. At Cavanagh's HR, we deliver HR to companies with four and under fewer people. The HR platform will provide you access to a dedicated HR business partner. Our guest today is Le- Levi Valage Reed. Levi, you ready to be great today? Yes, indeed. Levi graduated from Wells Co- College in upstate New York, near the, near the dairy farm where he grew up, grew up. Both of his parents were small business owners and had a strong interest in entrepreneurship. After working in the wine industry in New York for a couple of years and then in government, he studied for his MS in communications at Ithaca College and started a marketing practice. That got him interested in startups and tech, and ultimately he decided to do an MBA at ESAID in Barcelona, where he's forced out to land an internship with Amazon in Luxembourg. Levi, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for the invitation. So, did you grow up on a dairy farm or just close by a dairy farm? On a dairy farm. About a uh, hundred head um, for the most part, 100 to 150. So, uh, were you considered like a dairy farmer, a farmer, regular farmer? Like, how's that work? Dairy farmer, yeah. So, it was my dad's farm. Um, if I'd gone into farming, I'd be the seventh generation in the area going into dairy farming. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, the family's been up there for a while. There's, there's roads named after branches of the family in the area. Cornell University has a farm named after the family because they bought it from my great-grandfather. So, so what, what's the daily life of a farmer? Like, when did you start farming? Were you, like, three years old and your dad kicked you out? <laughs> hey, get up at four in the morning, go milk some cows? Well, that's that's pretty traditional in farm families, but uh, in my case, it was a little different. Dad, uh, dad wasn't super enthusiastic about the farming business, and he was pretty dead sent against uh, myself or my brother going into agriculture. Um, so, you know, we played on the farm, we learned our way around machinery, how not to hurt ourselves, that sort of thing from an early age. But uh, I actually had to argue with him in my teens to, to get him to let me help out on the farm and start milking cows and operating some of the machinery and whatnot. Uh, so a little bit of a different upbringing, I suppose. Is the farm still in the family? It is. Yeah. It's not a dairy farm anymore as a sort of active retirement dad went into uh, beef cattle farming. Although, as of last update, he has yet to actually sell a cow for beef, and last I heard he was naming them, which is never a good sign. So, we'll see. No, it's kind of hard to eat something you have a name for, right? This is this is true, and we're, the rest of the family is starting to question if, if Dad's really intending to actually sell any of these cows, or if he really just likes keeping cows. How, how many cows are on the farm? Right now, I want to say it's in the neighborhood of 40 or so head. Man, um, so, you can have 40 personal pets? Something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. So what are some lessons you learn from being on the farm that, you know, other people might not have by, you know, growing up in an urban environment? Well, I mean, there's certainly a comfort in a, in a very different sort of environment, right? Um, it's always been sort of surprising to me. I think, I think a lot of people who aren't really exposed to, to the natural world a lot as children can be very scared of it. Um, and for me, it's, it's sort of the opposite. City, city environments have always been sort of thrilling and, and a little scary, but usually in a good way to me. And, and I, I tend to feel a lot more relaxed and middle of a field <laughs> um that and just kind of learning how to how to work around big animals i think is probably a pretty important takeaway but i mean in more applicable senses i think the thing about farming is especially a small farm where you know it might just be one farmer or one or two people um you know there's a lot of animals depending on you right so i would see my dad get up and he, he could have a full-on influenza and he was going to be out there feeding the cows and he's going to be milking the cows because if you don't milk the cows regularly they, they develop diseases 
Um, and that level of grit and persistence, I think, is, is something that really uh, instilled a, a certain type of work ethic in myself and my brother from a young age. So not many sick days on the farm, I'm guessing, unless you're like not really. on your deathbed, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Either that or if you've got a hired hand, but dad was the kind of guy who never really trusted anybody else with his cows. So <laughs> it was typically just him. I, I remember one time he uh, had a pretty catastrophic accident, dislocated his shoulder and, and broke some collarbones. And so I was maybe 14 or 15 at the time and I was helping him with milkings. And uh, after after a few weeks, he just stopped telling me when he was doing the milkings and he'd go out and do it himself, one arm up in a sling. And I'd, I'd, I'd go, hey, where's dad? You know, and some people, oh, he started the milking. And I'd go running out there 20 minutes late to help him out because he just, he didn't want to ask for help, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely a lot of, a lot of persistence there. So I could be wrong, but of course, most of the big farms, they make a lot of money, but like small farmers, they're pretty much like living paycheck to paycheck, right? Taking exactly out loans right. and like, then it's a real struggle for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big part of why dad got out. It's, it's difficult, right? Because you, you look at it on paper and the assets for the farm can easily be seven, maybe even eight figures, even for a relatively small family farm, especially if land value goes up. But, you know, that's also the business. And in terms of day to day, you know, even a small farm like ours grossed six figures. And that was back in, you know, maybe the late 90s or early 2000s. But um, nearly all or sometimes more than all of that goes back into operational costs, you know, feed, livestock, maintenance, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, very capital intensive business, typically not terribly profitable. And unfortunately, the, the trend seems to be increasing in that way. It's really favoring massive operations and aggregation. And I have to imagine, like, the insurance cost has to be astronomical on a farm. I think all the heavy machinery and all the work and stuff. I can't imagine what, that, what it is. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the motivations, I think, that makes it really challenging to bring um, employees on board, right? The, you'll notice if, if you go through economic data or, or um, you know, labor regulations, OSHA regulations, a lot of these different policies apply to everything except agricultural workers. Agricultural workers are exempt from a whole lot of things, including a lot of different um, uh, minimum, um, minimum wage requirements. Um, so yeah, it can get really quite complex. And unfortunately, a lot of those exemptions open the door for a lot of labor abuses in the industry. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a very difficult situation. So next talk about your time in Barcelona. You spent a year there, right? Just talk about the experience, you know, how you liked it, didn't like it, and just what you gained from being overseas. Yeah, absolutely. About two years there actually, um, through the program. But, uh, I mean, it was my first time really living abroad. I'd traveled abroad before. I did a backpacking trip through Europe for a couple months after college, which was a lot of fun, but, um, you know, I'd been based in the same hometown my whole life. And so I was just kind of, you know, reading the writing on the wall and looking at trends in, in the kinds of roles that I wanted to go into and, and seeing the international experience just seemed to be something that was really important. Um, I'd had an international focus in my undergraduate degree as well. Um, and, you know, like a good MBA student, I uh, put together a spreadsheet. I had my, my hard requirements and my must-haves and my nice-to-haves for each MBA program I was looking at. Um, ultimately ended up applying to a few all through Western Europe because um, I just decided that was that was kind of the area I wanted to go for, right? It was an international experience, but given that I'd never lived abroad before, I didn't want to do anything too alien, too different, um, you know, ease myself into it. So I ended up with Asade in Barcelona just because um, it really ticked all the boxes. It was a long enough program to enable an internship. It uh, offers really, really strong exposure in terms of entrepreneurship. They've got an incubator, literally a startup incubator in the same building as the MBA program. Um, and that really paid off for me. I got an internship with one of the startups there two months after landing on campus. Um, and then I was really fortunate as well because I, I had a, a, a really good family friend who was living in Barcelona. She's, she's from there originally. So was able to kind of break out of the school bubble a little bit and actually experience the city 
Um, I made it a personal goal to really improve my Spanish. I'm of Puerto Rican descent, but I was raised in the U.S., so my Spanish is pretty rocky. Um, at this point, I'm not sure if it's better. I've got I've got some from Costa Rica because I studied there. I've got a bit of an accent from Puerto Rico because my family, and now uh, apparently some Catalan inflections. I'm told. So <laughs> people people native speakers look at me now when I speak Spanish. They give me this confused look, and invariably they go, "Are you Brazilian?" <laughs> Um, but no, it was, it was really a wonderful experience, uh, overall. I mean, I completely fell in love with Barcelona. I'm fully intend to move back at some point. Um, I, I just, I love the people there. I like the pace of life. Uh, only really real downside is the salaries. Um, but the, the experience of total immersion in a, in another culture is, is, is incredible. And it gives you a, I think, a a new dimension um, of empathy, right? When you're when you're working with others or talking with others, j- just to understand the ways in which societies can be different, right? It's it's uh, you know not even necessarily unique to people from that area. Yeah, I think so many Americans miss out on the travel thing. Like I, I have friends back in Texas; they they go the next and over. It's like traveling, like doing, doing a big trip, right? <laughs> and just the culture of different places, how people do different things and see different things. I think a lot of Americans miss out. I, I think that's probably true, to be honest. Um, you know, I, one of the really interesting experiences for me, to be honest, coming back from living in Europe, because uh, I, I was in Spain and then for my internship, I also spent several months in, in Luxembourg. Um, coming back was just having a new perspective on the differences between, you know, different cultures within this country, right? Um, I mean, the U.S. is, is a, by global standards, is a, a very large country, both geographically and in terms of population. Um, and the, the level of, of diversity that we have, just in terms of sort of cultural heritage throughout the countries, can be really profound. Um, you even see it linguistically, right, in different dialects throughout the country or dialectical uh, uh, differences in language. Um, and uh, I think it was, you know, bef- before traveling, I would kind of have an attitude like, uh, I don't think I fully appreciated the, the, the extent of those differences and how... how uh, meaningful it can be to try and understand those different patterns between, you know, cultures within the same country. It, it definitely gives you a different perspective. Yeah, I think we, as, we don't realize how diverse you are in America, right? If you go to Germany, everyone's a German. You go to France, everyone's a Frenchman, right? It's like, yeah. it's different. You know, I, I think I can make this up. Like, I think there's a neighborhood in Queens, New York was like six, like 200 languages, 300 people from different I've, countries. I've yeah, it's, it's wild. And it's, you know, Europeans get very confused when, when you talk to them, they go, why are all Americans identify as something else? You know, you always say you're German, you're not German, you're American. I say, yeah, that's understandable. But the thing is, I think you have to understand the difference between a nationality and, you know, the, the state to which you belong, right? And in, in Germany, you're, you're, you're German ethnicity, you're German and nationality, assuming, you know, your, your family is of German ethnicity, but, um, but you're also from the German state. And in, in the U.S., there isn't really, you know, an American ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't have a single... American culture. We we have a culture that's built up out of amalgamations of the people who have immigrated here for the most part, right? Obviously, you know, we have native populations as well, but that's I think for the average individual probably not a major part of their cultural experience in this country. Um and uh I, I just uh you know, I, I think that distinction is, is maybe maybe lost on some folks. And that's why in my opinion, so many Americans will identify something else because they're looking for a cultural identifier as well. Right. In addition to their their point of origin, their state. And I, I think that's why we have so many. What do they call them? Uh, hyphenated Americans, I think is the term. Yes. Yeah. So so funny story. And this is kind of my it might be borderline inappropriate, but it's kind of funny. I remember <laughs> a caveat when this happened, I was like 19 years old and single. Right. So I'm in the army in Germany and we took this mean and they had a trip to go to Barcelona, Spain for like a week. Right. So like 20 of us went right. 20 guys went right. We're walking around. 
And this female worker still, female walks up, like really pretty. Hey, do you want to have a good time and party? Like, yeah, sure we do. How many are there? And she's like, oh, well, there's 20 of us. Well, there's only 10 of us, but we can make it work, you know? How much money you got? And we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> we're talking about that kind of business. And we just like <laughs> ran away, right? <laughs> that's why. Well, I didn't have any experiences like that in Barcelona myself, fortunately, but that's, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I, I think, you, you know, you do have to watch out for things like, like, uh, it's, it's pretty common in, uh, in a lot of major cities through Europe, you know, there's, there's some pretty creative approaches to, uh, panhandling and, yes. you know, soliciting money. Um, and we stuck out like a source of some 20 young exactly American it. guys with army haircuts, you know, and you just, yeah. you could just tell we're like, right for getting scammed and conned out of stuff, you know? I had an experience, uh, I guess a little bit like that in, in Paris, I was, I was there for a, a school thing and I had the rest of the day and then I had a, a flight back at the end of the day. So I was having to carry my little wheelie bag suitcase around with me and that made me marchers for everybody. And so at the time there was this scam that a lot of the folks were running there where they would, they'd come up to you with a clipboard, they'd pretend to be deaf and mute. And the clipboard was trying to solicit like donations for some imaginary, you know, deaf mute society. So this happened to me a couple times. I waved them off. And then at one point, this woman approaches the same exact clipboard. They were clearly coming from the same source. And this, uh, this street vendor nearby starts yelling in heavily accented English. She goes, hey, it's a scam. Don't, don't pay any attention to her. So she whips around and glares daggers at him. So clearly not as, not as deaf as she was uh, trying, to, trying to claim. And then uh, she puts the clipboard towards me. And I, I waved her off, you know, because I already knew it was a scam. And... Uh, and the guy, the guy starts yelling something in French. She turns around, starts yelling at him in French. And then in English, she goes, eh, fuck you. <laughs> I, I could not stop laughing. Not 10 minutes later, I'm walking down the street. I pass a group of teens. They're all chattering, talking amongst themselves right in front of me. And then one of them kind of breaks off from the group, lingers for a moment as I walk by and comes up to me with the same damn clipboard. I, I looked at her and I said, no. And she, she gave me this look and shrugged like, well, worth a try. And then, and then yeah. ran off to get, and rejoin her. At friend. least they were persistent. They were persistent. All right. Yeah. But the, the ones I encountered in Spain, to be honest with you, were probably worse. There's a, there's a tendency there where... Um, Someone will run up to you, they'll grab your hand and they'll put something in your hand, you know, small fake flower or something, or they'll pretend to read your palm or whatever. And then they'll start screaming at you, demanding money, right? So you really have to be quick on the draw. If somebody grabs your hand, you got to whip it back as fast as possible, put your hands in the air. Um, otherwise, it, it creates quite a scene, which is, is pretty unpleasant. Yeah, we were, we were in Italy for two years when I was in the army with my family. Mm -hmm. And like the, I don't know if it's the correct term or not. Like the gypsies were there, mm -hmm. and man, they were like aggressive. Like you be at the stoplight, they'll come knocking your window, bam, bam, bam. Yeah, like give me some money, right? And they would bring the wow. whole family, right? Wow. And they were made it really bad. So in Italy, they passed a law. I don't know why, where like somebody broke in your house, you can only like defend yourself. You felt threatened. Okay. So gypsies start sending their infant, like their small children to rob your house, right? Holy cow! Like six, seven year old kids, right? And like, wow. and like, are you gonna like beat them up and like shoot them? Like, no, because then you go to jail, right? <laughs> so they were very, very smart on how they did things. Wow, that's wild. I mean, I think regardless of the legality, I, I don't think want to want to do much to harm a child anyway, even in that yeah, circumstance. Exactly. But, but that's uh, that's pretty intense. I, I hadn't heard about that. The the only encounter, I think the the term they use now is Roma. Um, yeah, that's a Roma. That's the, a Roma. That's the correct term. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I think I encountered a few Roma. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I think in in Barcelona in particular, and to some extent in France, but definitely in Italy as well. But nothing like that. I mean, definitely some persistence in panhandling. But that was about the Do worst. Do you have a favorite country while you was over there? Oh gosh, I mean. Honest. Well, okay. So all, all the above <laughs> <laughs> depends on the mood I'm in. I, Catalonia in Spain is is probably if if I had to pick one place I was going to spend a lot of time that that would probably be it. Um, but uh, because to be honest with you, the, the north of Spain and Catalonia in particular is is 
so dramatically different from the south of Spain. So I couldn't I couldn't say Spain in general. But uh, outside of that, I think uh, Italian food is, in my opinion, really really good. Like central and southern Italian food is some of the best cuisine on the planet. I think. Um, I'll, I'll second that. Yeah, it's. I've I've been getting into bread making over the past few years, and uh, like about five years ago, I started. And some of those Italian hearth breads are some of my favorite things to make. Yeah, really, like I said, really we're eating for two years, and like we never had a bad meal, right? Yeah, it's, it was like at one time a friend recommended, "Hey, go to this, this pizza place. It's like thirty miles away where we lived at." Yeah, and he said this one is kind of it's gonna kind of dark, trying to kind of bad, but man, you got to stay for the food. We went there. It was like ninety degrees in the summer. There's no air conditioner. Everyone's <laughs> sweating. There's flies everywhere. But it took us like an hour to get in, right? Yeah. So that's the clue. It was good. We got the pizza. Like man, it was so good. Like we forgot about th- the, the flies, the heat. It, it, was, it was so yeah, good, right? That that sounds about right. My my brother and I spent some time in a few days in Rome, and uh, I remember at one point we got a we got a pizza. We walk into this little pizza joint on the corner. Fully a third of the interior space is just the oven. Yes, There's hardly any other space. It's sweltering in there because this was in the middle of the summer in Rome, and same as you were saying, air conditioning. And I think, and this was just a few years ago. It was maybe I think it was about five euros. We got an entire pizza. This was a right. big pizza, and uh, we both ate some from it, like full meal. Had some more that evening, and then had it for breakfast the next day. It was. I said, "Oh my gosh, I think I love Italy." <laughs> Yes. And the wine too. Italian wine is is just just a house wine. They give you a meal at some random house wine they it's make incredible. in the back in the backyard or somewhere. It's like yeah. it's great. You know, Croatia is like that too. Mm-hmm. The the food in Croatia is very cheap, unbelievably good, and the same with the wine. I remember going to to to, to markets in Croatia and buying uh, what I think was Zinfandel um, in in literally a, a two liter like plastic Coke bottle for like two three euros. And drinking that, and it's just incredible. I mean, it's not a not a wine you'd age, and it wasn't aged wine. It was it was you know much a much younger wine, but just really, really good, really fantastic. You know, and you're buying this sketchy looking plastic bottle. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic, and it's dirt cheap. Honestly, Spain is still like that. Like you, you get you get. I I went to restaurants personally. I've got photos of menus where a glass of wine is cheaper than a bottle of water. And yes. You get the wine, and it. You know, it's it's nothing you're going to write home about, but it's it's very nice wine, right? It's it's not bad at all. No, no, uh, it's not. And I say this as a former winemaker. <laughs> and another thing about when I was in Germany, like one time, my daughter, I teach her in junior high, she had to do a, a book report on Anne Frank. Well, oh, you know what we do that weekend? We drove to Amsterdam with the Anne Frank house, right? Really? Yeah. I was in Amsterdam. I couldn't muster up the nerve <laughs> to to visit the house. I mean, yeah, that's wild. So it's just great like, to opportunities. So next, Levi, talk about how you got involved with tech of startups, how that transition happened. Yeah, that's a that's a long story, honestly, but I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Tell me if I need to fast forward. Um, so I, uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning, like you said, uh, I, I did a master's degree at Ithaca College um, in communications, and uh, it was really more in kind of the theory and science of communication, I'd say. And a lot of folks from the degree went into, well, into HR, actually. It was a really popular um, destination. It wasn't really a marketing degree, but... That's kind of how I decided to take it. <laughs> um, and so after I left my, my job with government, was trying to kind of stand on my own two feet as, as, a, as a consultant or a freelancer, freelancer slash consultant, um, I had a really lovely design agency I'd, I'd done my internship with in Ithaca. Um, and they were, they were just massively supportive. Um, they didn't really do content development, um, but they did a lot of web development and graphic design. So I started working with them to kind of as a subcontractor, essentially working with their clients. And I got myself an office in a small co-working space in downtown in that city. And this co-working space was mostly it was some startups, some freelancers, and the group, two or three 
I think, I think two, two partners behind the co-working space were working on an, a startup agency idea at the time. And so I got involved in that as, as kind of a part-time thing and ended up, you know, providing some services to some of the other folks working in the co-working space. And I just started to really fall in love with this. Like it's, I, I saw another founder say this on LinkedIn and I wish I could credit who said it cause I can't remember now, but they were talking about the idea of launching a new initiative as making business into almost a form of art or self-expression. And I thought that was such a great way of putting it, right? It was, it was such a fascinating exposure to, to, to realize that, you know, th- these kinds of initiatives that even the biggest companies in the world, in many cases, they were started by someone going, you know, it would be a good idea. And then just doubling down on that, right? That there's, there's so much uh, self-direction and opportunity um, in this space if you want to take advantage of it. And that, that level of um, independence, autonomy, and creativity to me is just intoxicating. Um, so I really loved that work, but I, I came to realize I was just butting up against a wall. I just did not have the knowledge, the business expertise, the experience to feel that I was set up for success in the space. So that's what led me to do the MBA. Um, and like I said earlier, I, I chose that MBA specifically because of the, um, the, the entrepreneurial focus of the program. It, I mean, it really is very strong. I, I, uh, Looking back, I think I made an even better decision than I realized at the time, to be honest. So I, I came out of there and, and I knew at that point that I, I really wanted some larger company experience if I could land it, um, not least to replenish my finances after two years living abroad as a student, to be honest, but also just because I'd never worked in a large corporation and I felt that that would be valuable experience to have if I wanted to go and launch a successful initiative myself or find ways to help other initiatives, other startups be successful. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate to land the internship with Amazon and even more fortunate to, to, to get the full-time offer out of that. Um, so I spent about four and a half years after the internship full-time at Amazon and tried to stay in touch with new new initiatives, ventures, the startup space in whatever capacity possible. So um, after my first role, because I was assigned to it in, in retail, I moved out as the first marketing hire for um, Amazon Lending, a fintech program within the company. Um, then I moved over to, after that role, to, to lead an email marketing team at Amazon Advertising, which at the time was just beginning to spin off as its own business entity. Um, I was actually there when they rebranded in the Amazon Media Group and Amazon Marketing Services into the Amazon Advertising Entity, um, which was a, a pretty pretty wild experience, actually, to kind of get to witness that firsthand, what that looks like inside of a large company. Um, uh, right around then, you know, we'd launched a couple products there and I really wanted to learn more about uh, go-to-market processes. So I accepted a role with devices leading go-to-market for Echo devices at Amazon. Um, less of a startup focus, but really getting more of that go-to-market experience, which I think, and I'm increasingly coming to realize, is integral to, to any startup, especially a tech startup, right? There's, there's, at some point, you're bringing a product or service to market. And that really, in this day and age, is its own discipline. Um, a very engaging one, in my in my opinion. Um, and then after that role during COVID, I, I moved over to Amazon Launchpad, which, you know, direct relationship with startups. That's what the program does. It supports um, e- new e-commerce ventures and startups on the Amazon platform. Very cool role. That team is fantastic. One of the best teams at Amazon, in my opinion. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and during that time, I was working as a mentor wherever I could. And I say working, not, not in a paid sense, just volunteering, you know and trying to get involved in as many different organizations and groups in the area, you know, investor groups, um, accelerators, that sort of thing. I, I was uh, mentoring residents at Galvanize for a little bit, um, which was a lot of fun. And right around then, I connected with Jeremy Zaretsky over at um, Founder Institute Seattle uh, as a mentor originally. And then after doing that for a year or two, Jeremy invited me to join as a director to help run 
the accelerator. So I'm still doing that. So, you know, I've always been very inspired by the kinds of folks who work in the startup space who sort of just create their own role. You know, they don't have a fixed job necessarily, you know, with a, with a nine to five sort of structure, or maybe they do and they're doing everything outside that, but they just kind of pull together expertise in a space, build a sort of personal brand and reputation for themselves. And, you know, just kind of take projects that they find interesting and engaging. I feel like there's a certain type of individual I encounter in, in, in the world of tech startups that, that sort of fits in this bucket. And, and that, that's kind of the direction I, I think I've ended up finding myself going in, you know, trying to develop expertise in a relevant area, develop the connections and network in the startup space, and, and really be able to move fluidly between roles to kind of follow, follow passions and interests. Um, a good friend of mine said to me recently that he's learned not to not to work against his own curiosity. And I thought, what a brilliant phrase. I love it so much. And, uh, you know, I've kind of adopted that as, as, as a guide, guide light for myself at this point. As well. So we got a lot, a lot to go through there, but let's be, go back just for a minute. So yeah. both your parents are entrepreneurs. Talk about how, how seeing like two parents as entrepreneurs influenced you. Yeah, there's pros and cons. So they were entrepreneurs in the sense that they had small businesses, not, you know, a venture back startup or anything like that. So my father, of course, had the, the farm, as I mentioned. Uh, my mother started a, a dog daycare um, when I was about, I want to say 10 or 11. Before that, she'd had a baking business. Um, before that, she'd done uh, daycare for children when I was younger. Um, so, you know, lots of, lots of different things that she tried out that would enable her to, you know, I was homeschooled uh, up until college and so was my brother. So, you know, she was looking for things that would enable her to kind of still have that level of engagement um, and also be able to try and earn some money. The dog daycare, as it turned out, took off. Um, as far as we can tell, it's the largest one in the area, possibly the largest one in the East I mean, Coast. It's still going on right now. It's still going, yeah. Very, very successful. Um, and it's, it's really just been, I think, pretty incredible for me to get to kind of watch how that worked out, right, as a child and watch, you know, being that it isn't a startup, it was, it's essentially, its growth was limited deliberately, right? Because it got to a point where mom felt that, you know, if the business grew any further, it would exceed her span of personal control. And, and that, that was where she was comfortable. That's where she wanted the business, um, which I think is true of a lot of small business owners. And so she's grown it within those confines and managed the business, brought on employees, brought on managers. And it's just been really interesting to watch, you know, someone build a successful business without knowing what they're doing to start, right? And figuring it out as they, as they go. Um, really quite inspiring. So from my point of view, it was really interesting because, you know, I had these great examples of the, you know, of people, of my two parents, you know, operating these two very different types of businesses and, you know, the, the, the pains that they went through, the, the triumphs, what led to success, what didn't, and how they thought about it. The downside was that I didn't have anyone as a role model for a more conventional path of employment. So I, I was raised very much with this attitude that, you know, office life is more or less death um, and, and you don't take a job like that, <laughs> you know, unless unless your life depends on it. And right around my late teens, early 20s, it occurred to me, I thought, you know, neither one of my parents has ever had a job like that. They, they don't they don't really know. I'm going to go give it a shot. And that's, <laughs> that's around when I accepted the role with, with government. And I decided I actually quite like working in an office. Um, definitely beats pruning vines in a field in February, I'll tell you that. Uh, so, you know, as, as, a, as always, I think there's kind of a middle ground. And so part of that course I had to chart for myself, but, you know, part of it, I, I definitely had some really excellent role models in, in my two parents, but, uh, definitely a, a different upbringing, I think, than a lot of my colleagues that I, that I talked to and work with for sure. And with a doggy decker, it just proves that you never know what's going to hit it off, right? You might think you have yeah. an like, off the wall idea, you might, whatever it may be, but you just don't know. 
what people are going to pay for until you put it out there in the yeah, market. That's exactly right. And, and that's one of the things, right? Because when it started, you know, a lot of people, myself included, you know, to what extent that was relevant at the age of 10, thought that it was kind of bonkers, right? I mean, this was back, let's see, this would have been right around 2000, 1999, maybe. So really bonkers back then. He like us 2022 where people do that stuff all the time. Exactly, exactly. Now, we didn't know it at the time, but as it turned out, the timing was perfect. We were just riding the crest of, and I say we because I was pretty actively involved in helping with the business in the early days, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there really was this burgeoning um, social shift in terms of attention towards pets and the money people were willing to spend on their pets. Um, and we had a bit of a clue because there was actually a smaller uh, dog daycare down the street. And the, the owner was the one who, who really encouraged my mom to go for it. But she said, look, I've got a waiting list that's bigger than the number of dogs I can currently accommodate. I'm desperate for someone to take them off my hands. I'll give you advice to set up. And she did. She came over and gave some advice to set up. And ultimately, you know, they went very different directions with the two businesses. But I think that impetus and initial encouragement was was very, very important, you know, to get things going. Yes. So next, you volunteer for an organization called Built by Girl. Can you talk about that some? Yeah, that one, unfortunately, not, not a lot coming through there in the past year or two. But when I started about, I want to say three, four years ago, it's a really cool organization. They're based out on the East Coast. Basically, what they do is they work with young women um, in high school and college uh, who are interested in roles in the tech industry, both technical and non-technical positions. And they try to match them with mentors working in that industry, both men and women. Um, and they've got a really structured approach. Um, there's a there's a fixed term for each, uh, you know, like uh, advisory match, let's say. And, and of course, you're welcome to continue the engagement after that if both parties want to. But but that's kind of where they where they set it. They've got a platform where everything and all communication is managed. And then they have a very clear set of expectations for the mentors and the mentees, you know, throughout the course of the program. Um, I think the structure is really nice because. Uh, there can be so much difference, frankly, in the, the experience and areas of life of the mentor and the mentee um, that often it can be really hard to kind of set expectations and having that framework makes it really, really helpful. And all these girls a certain age? Uh, high school to college. So okay. I'd say I think the youngest mentee I had personally was probably 18, 17 or 18, and the oldest maybe 22 through that program. Um and my partner does it as well, and I think she's actually still in touch with one of her mentees who's probably 23 or 24 at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, you can engage me if you want after the fact. Um, but, yeah, it's a super cool program, and, and uh, I think it's really great because, you know, I talked to some of the, some of the young women that I've, I've been matched with through the, through the program, and you just start to realize they just really don't have, in many cases, they, they don't have great examples of, of other women you know, succeeding in these spaces. And often they're really shocked when I'll put them in touch with, you know, my own colleagues, right? Women working in different technical roles, especially, you know, women in very, very technical roles, you know, data science or, or engineering roles, developer roles, whatever. And, and getting to have that kind of exposure, you know, some of the conversations we've had after they've connected with those people have just been really remarkable, you know, kind of bring a tear to your eye sort of things where they, they just say, you know, I didn't, just never really thought of this as an opportunity or as a possibility right now that I've talked to this, this woman, I've, I've charted like a course for myself. If I want to get into this space, a lot of them are really interested in product management. Um, and, and that's probably just because, you know, that's kind of a technical area that closely aligns with my background. And so that was, that's where you matched with. But, um, I think it's really, really exciting to see, um, you know, there's so much benefit that you see to every stakeholder involved from employees to customers to, investors when you have good gender diversity on a team, right? 
everything from the product design and development to return on investment. And uh, I'll, I'll say anecdotally, the best teams that I've worked on personally in terms of team culture and just kind of the atmosphere, stress levels, have always been the ones where there's a good balance of men and women, not just throughout the team, but in positions of authority. That's what's really key. There's a lot of teams, and you see this in marketing in particular, where if you, if you, if you just look at the gender balance, it'll often be 50-50 or sometimes even 60-40, uh, more, more women than men. And then when you break it down by seniority, you get to the first level of management and there's no more women, right? It's all men in, in management positions. Um, if, if you can find a team where there's, there's better gender balance, you just tend to have, in my experience, just a much, much better team culture, management culture. Yeah, I, I think every stand out there, every business study done forever always says the more diverse your team is, the better ROI, better KPIs, yeah. more revenue. I mean, yeah, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing, one study out there that says non-diverse is a way to go. Everything says be diverse and make more money. That's yeah, exactly it. And, it's, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Yeah. You see it in startups too, right? Uh, diverse founding teams in terms of gender diversity, uh, founding teams with women on average see something like 60% better returns on investment than, than all male teams. Now, to be fair, I mean, a big part of that is because those teams with women are being discriminated against, right? You just look at the numbers, right? I think it's last year, 2.1% of venture funding went to teams with women, even though teams with women represent something like 30 or 40% of new, new businesses. Um, you know, so it's essentially a fire sale, right? There aren't as many investors competing to invest in those companies, which means the investors who do are getting better terms, um, which is not great. Um, so some of that, that 60% improvement on, on investment, that's going to change as, as hopefully we improve this, you know, the, the allocation of investment dollars. Um, but I strongly suspect we're going to continue to see a trend there, right? If, you know, it, it really, we, we see those kinds of patterns of better results with better diversity just across the board. I'd be very surprised if that didn't hold true consistently in founding teams as well, even once we start to see better equality among, you know, uh, patterns of investment. So Levi, back to the females in STEM. Uh, I'm making this number up, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. I think I remember reading somewhere like in, in elementary, like 80% of elementary school girls are interested in STEM. Okay. By the time they get to senior high school, it's on like five to ten percent, right? Sure. Well, why does that number drop so low? Just societal pressures, or just and how do we fix that? You think? Well, I mean, I have opinions, but I'll I'll just put out there, right? I'm I'm disadvantaged on this point in two respects. One, like I mentioned, I was homeschooled. I didn't go to public school. Number two, um, I'm not a woman, right? So I haven't had that experience, and I can't really, you know, talk to a woman's experience. Obviously, um, what I do see, you know, at least in the tech sector, is just a tacit difference in how women are treated frequently, right? Um, and, you know, much to my own chagrin, I've, I've seen this in myself. I, I was talking to my partner about this the other day. I was having a conversation. I was, I was at my dentist's office and uh, my hygienist asked me, you know, what, what my startup does and I was explaining it. And it's, it's a fairly complex topic, so I was trying to simplify it as much as possible. And then a few minutes later, the dentist came in and uh, so the hygienist was a woman, the dentist is a, is a man. And he asked me the same question and I, I was halfway through my description and I realized, you know, I was just without thinking about it, using significantly more technical language with the dentist. And I reflected on that after the fact and I thought, well, is it is it because, you know, I have some idea that he's a doctor and therefore, you know, for some reason, you know, more better able to understand this. And I thought, no, that's that's really not what it is. I think it was really it was just this knee jerk reaction in my mind that I was reacting differently to the fact that he was male. You know, and this is these are things I try to be conscious of, and I, I still find myself engaging in these unconsciously sexist behaviors, right? Um, and so I think if you're not really trying to self-examine and to acknowledge that you do have these biases, I mean, you in the general sense, that one does have these biases and that they are going to manifest, and, and it's important to be on the lookout for them and try to correct for them. 
you know, that's just going to be self that's just going to be perpetuating, right? Um, being in marketing, a lot of the teams that I've led personally have been all or majority women. And uh, I've been really fortunate enough to, to, to have the kind of women on my team who are not afraid to point out to me when I'm engaged in that kind of behavior. And they have done so. And it's been a very illuminating experience, right? Because I start to realize where my own behavior is perpetuating, perpetuating these kinds of, um, you know, biases, inequities, or what a lot of people might call microaggressions and, and try, to, uh, try to improve it. So I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, if we're seeing this among um, adults, often adults who are intentionally attempting not to engage in this kind of behavior, and you can still see these kinds of patterns, you know, in, in industry, I can only imagine what it must be like in school with children, right? Um, and like, you know, I mean that literally, I can only imagine I haven't been in school, but my, my, my guess is, you know, uh, years, years of dealing with those kinds of small, constant, you know, negative nudges and, and uh, lack of representation, lack of examples of people who look like you succeeding in the ways that you want to, that has to have an effect, right? And I strongly suspect that's, that's why we see that pattern. So a, a good example, maybe from the point of view, a better example of that. So Sheryl Sandberg, no, she wrote a book leaning a little while ago. Yeah. And so she's telling a story where um, she, met, she met someone at a store and the lady said, hey, I went to your webinar and I went to your in-person conference back, blah, blah, blah. So Sheryl said, well, how, what do you think? Well, actually, I was disappointed. What do you mean? Well, it was good enough. By the end, you said, no more questions. I got to wrap up. And then 10 guys op- put their hands up and you, and you, and, uh, and you let them all of my ask questions, but none of those females did. And she's like, if I'm the head of the lead in movement, I'm doing this. Like, how can I expect anyone else to even do better than I am? Right. If she's the one saying lean in and, wow. you know, so I thought it was pretty thought provoking when I read that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very thought provoking. Yeah. It's, it's very, very interesting. And it gets, you start getting into very sticky questions. You know, I know there's been a lot of debate over the past few years about, you know, salary differences between men and women and to what extent that might be driven by, uh, you know, women maybe not self-advocating as much as Yeah, I'm a big reason, that's the big reason. I, I think there is, but then we have to go a little bit deeper, right? Why is that the case? And, and you know, I, I think in a lot of cases, the, the institutions that, that we have are really doing a disservice to women in those situations, right? I mean... Because essentially what we're doing, right, in a situation like that is we're saying, hey, we want, we want a good gender balance because we want good diversity. We want a diversity of perspectives and personalities, right? That's great. But to get here, we're going to need you to conform exactly to the behaviors, behavioral patterns of, of the dominant group. That to me seems a little bit absurd and self-defeating, right? So we can look at it and say, okay, maybe women aren't self-advocating. But I don't think the solution is to say, now women, you have to go self-advocate better, right? <laughs> I think the solution is is to look at it and say, okay, what about this situation is creating this problem? And can we remove can we remove this particular issue entirely, right? Can we look at something like, for example, you know, better communication of salary ranges up front, for example? Or, you know, are there other policies or practices that we can engage in? that might, might enable us to welcome this particular type of diversity, this, this particular difference of behavior, right, without resulting in unfairly unequal outcomes for the participants, if that makes sense. It does. And I think it goes a step further. And this is like a slight exaggeration on the much. A guy gets hired for a job. He, he's over six months. Hey, boss, I've been on time every day for six months. I need a raise, right? And you may not get it. A right. female will, like, close a $10 million deal and no one or whatever, like, increase ROI by 13%. You do ask for a raise. Oh, no, I'm just doing my job. Yes, I could not agree with that more. I, I'm not going to go into too many details here because I don't want to give away like personal information or anything. But I have had personal experiences, you know, where I've seen firsthand how men and women on my, my own team, how their achievements have been received very differently, um, you know, by peers and superiors w- within the same organization. 
um, I've experienced, it is, I've, I've had so much more difficulty in my career getting women promoted in situations where I'm not the sole decision maker um, than getting men promoted. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's exactly like you're describing, right? The, the same achievement, right, for, for, you know, a man might do something and they'll say, well, he's showing great potential and, and a woman might, you know, be in the same exact situation. They say, well, she hasn't, she hasn't accomplished this yet, right? And, well, wait a minute, that's the definition of a double standard, right? And, you know, women say this all the time because they experience it personally and they see it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about is the kind of thing that happens behind the closed doors, you know, away from, away from the people in question, between the decision makers who in organizations that engage in this kind of thing are typically predominantly male in the management structure, right? And, and they don't mean to be malicious. This isn't a conscious, well, I, I, I hope it's not a conscious uh, discrimination, but it's still happening. They're, 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 they're looking at the two candidates, the two situations through entirely different lenses. They don't even realize they're doing it. Right. Um, and, and I shouldn't say we, they, I should say we, because I'm, I'm 100% certain I'm guilty of this as well. Um, but, and that, that's what I'm talking about when it's incumbent on us to, um, to acknowledge that whatever our intentions, we're almost certainly engaging in this kind of behavior, right. As, as individuals and as professionals. And so it's important to, 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 to recognize that recognize that doesn't mean that you're a bad person, right. We're, we're all human. We make mistakes, but it does mean that, you know, you have some moral responsibility. I personally would argue, um, to, to try and, uh, you know, accommodate that fact, to acknowledge it and try to find ways to, to correct for it if possible. And like I said, everyone has a bias. Like you might decide between like who you would promote, you know, Bob or Susan. And you right. might not know it, but in the back of your mind, but you might be like, hey, Bob is single, no kids. He can be a guard, hold, get hard. Yeah. You know, Susan, she doesn't have any kids yet. I know she's married and she's going to be that itch and we're going to lose her for like whatever time it is. So let's promote the male, you know? Yeah. I've, I've had some of these conversations where, you know, someone will ask me, you know, I want to hire so-and-so or I want to promote so-and-so and they'll say, Oh, you know, it's, you know, they'll, they'll start asking questions. And after a couple of minutes I go, are you trying to figure out if she's going to have kids soon? You know, it's just super not okay. Um, one little technique I like to try and use, and I, I forget who suggested this to me. I didn't come up with it, but it's just to try and, Imagine if, if you can switch the genders and, and just try and think, would I think about this person or this situation the same way if the genders were reversed, right? Or if they were changed in some way. And if you can really kind of commit to that little thought experiment, it can be surprisingly revealing. I mean, like in the example I gave you earlier of my own experience with my, do- my dentist and, and hygienist. Um, but, you know, even, even that's imperfect, right? It's difficult to do and it doesn't always occur to one to, to, to try and, and do that. Um, but it's a start. So, so last Saturday, I went to this event at the, at the Boeing Museum of Flight. My friend Kerry G put on. It's like a basically a panel of aviation military people, like retired. Oh, wow. And so, so or like one, one lady, she was a YouTube pilot. Another lady's like from under two work, like did some great stuff, right? That's and awesome. so one lady, I can remember her name, a retired Air Force Colonel, 30 years, flew all kind of, I mean, all time air, uh, aircraft, right? She's a senior person at the civilian side of the Air Force at an Air Force base in California. And she tells me at least once a month, someone asks her, who I turn my um, security passes into, right? And she said one time this low-level employee will explain to her how an uh, engine works. <laughs> and so like, I'm a retired colonel, blah, 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 I have two masters. Let me, t- no, let me tell you how it works, right? And it's like, just ridiculous, right? It's yeah, like, yeah, that's, that's really, really remarkable. I'm, I mean, the, the closest I can relate to that is, is uh, you know, throughout my life, it's been very, very common when I'm in a place that uh, someone will assume that I work there, uh, especially if it's if it's kind of a retail position, right? If I'm in like a Best Buy or something, um, or a restaurant, it's it's very common. Uh, it's happened several times at uh, Benaroya Hall, actually, when I go for the symphony. My, my partner and I really enjoy doing that. 
and uh, I've had people come up to me and assume I'm an usher, uh, even though the ushers wear uniforms that look nothing like the clothes that, that I, I would be wearing at the time. So I think it's the closest I can relate because, you know, I, I never really thought much of it. And then when my partner and I first started dating, she's she's uh, white. Um, and, uh, you know, I was describing this experience, just kind of assuming it was something that happened to everybody. And she said, you know, that's never happened to me. And she got very upset the first time it happened in front of her uh, because she felt that it was very racist, right? That, you know, given my darker complexion, that people were maybe more inclined to assume that I, I worked in a place. And, uh, you know, since since then, talking to folks who work in DEI and just kind of reading up on it myself, I've learned that that, that is, in fact, a pattern that's seen among people with, with darker skin. I had no idea. Um, and and it frankly can get quite irritating. Sometimes people will get downright unpleasant Um you know, if they think you work there and, and you're not responding the way they want, or sometimes even when you tell them you don't work there, uh, if, they've, if they've gotten themselves all worked up at that point, it's, I think it's hard for them to let the, uh, the anger go. What they call it, the, the Karen complex. I wasn't going to call it that, but yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of that. Yep. I, I had a lady one time in a shopping mall I was in, she came storming out of the bathroom. She was mad as hell about something. And uh, she comes up to me and starts telling me how there's so much water on the floor and someone could slip and hurt themselves. And I am completely confused, right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, did she think I spilled something? And then she pauses mid-tirade. I think she saw that I was completely confused. And she goes, you work here, right? And I said, no, no, I don't work here. I have no idea why she thought I worked there. I wasn't, I literally walked out of the bathroom. I was still, you know, drying my hands off. I was not wearing anything passing for a uniform. And I said, I, you know, I don't work here. And she goes, oh, and then resumed the tirade. <laughs> Just my, my, my employment status apparently had made, made, no, uh, made no difference in that case. Um, so I, I basically ran away. I wasn't, wasn't about to deal with that, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, that and getting followed around stores and whatnot. But anyway, the point I was going to make is that's about as close as I think I can relate to, to the experience that you just described. But I think every, every woman I know that I broached this topic with has at least one really good story along the lines of what you just described. It's made me try to be much, much more careful because, again, I've realized a tendency in myself to launch into an explanation of something with women, whereas with men, I'll, I'll more frequently stop and ask if they're familiar with it already, um, you know, just without thinking. And so I've, I try to be a lot more conscious about that because um, that's the other thing you see, right? A lot of a lot of women, at least in my experience, will often, you know, in the interests of being polite, will not say anything. Right. And they'll, they'll let you go on. Um, and a lot of men will not because they're very eager to <laughs> prove to you they know what you're talking about. Um, you know, and, and that's just not a situation that I want to create. I, I appreciate the kindness, but, uh, you know, I think it's, 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 again, it's, it's, uh, it's not great to present that kind of a double standard, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's bad when it, when it makes it on primetime TV, you, you see a TV show where they have a business meeting and the lady will have this idea, blah, 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 blah. And like, that's stupid, Susan, you know, yeah. sit down. And like second later, Bob, say, say exact thing. Bob's a genius. Susan, yeah. how can you think about that? She was like, I literally just said the same thing. Oh, uh, there's some good, there's a, I think there's a Pixar short on more or less that topic. And then there's, um, oh, I hope I remember her name correctly. I think it's Sarah Cooper, the comedian. Uh, she's ex-Google. She actually has a special on Netflix. She has online some really biting pieces about these kinds of phenomena. Very entertaining to read and frankly, very educational, right? As a guy, right? You read these kinds of things and you go, oh yeah, like I've seen this. I didn't realize this was, this was a pattern associated with, you know, sexist behavior or prejudice, whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to see those kinds of things. But yeah. And then like you're a company you started with KCB, you, you're like, I, I don't want, I want to hire, I want to be a right? But first thing you know, well, 
one thing I think we got to agree on, like diverse hiring is not easy, right? You just can't say, I'm going to hire this demographic, right? First of all, sure. you have to be qualified and that you want to work for you, right? Yeah. And all the kind of stuff. Like, you're just going to say, I'm going to hire X, Y, Z and manage the career, right? So it's, it's hard yeah. to think of people is right. Then if you're a startup company and you have 10 white guys, can you really go, I'm going to hire a Hispanic female? Yeah. Like why would that person, anyone non-white want to come work for you, right? Yeah. The culture is a bro culture. You probably yeah. have ping pong beer, like. And, and I understand it's hard to be intentional, right? You know, it's, and you, when you start a startup, you know, you might want to hire your friends because you trust them. They have the skills you need, but it's, it's a challenge, I think, all the way across the board. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I, I completely agree. And that's no, no excuse for shying away from it. But I think it is important to acknowledge that it is a challenge. I remember when I was in my, my MBA program, we had a, like one of those, you know, real world projects we were working on. We had a startup in the city that I think they had around 14, 15 employees at the time. It was a tech startup, so mostly engineers. And they had recognized that they had extremely poor gender diversity in their team. And yet, like, again, out of, out of around 15 people, they had two women. Um, and they said they were really struggling to get women to apply to their roles, and they weren't sure what they were doing wrong, and they wanted to see if we could help. And so, you know, this, this startup was assigned to us as a team to try and come up with some ideas for their, their hiring. And I remember, you know, they, they shared with us some of their material, their website for hiring, you know, a little brochure thing they had. And uh, I started cracking up when I saw it because I said, well, you know, I see a big problem right off the bat. <laughs> You've got all of your photos of the entire team. And there's all these guys, you know, they got the front row kneeling down and then the back row standing and all these guys in there, you know, they're smiling and everything. And every single photo, the two women looked like someone was holding a gun to their head, right? Arms crossed and like, yeah, not, like not, this not facial the, expression. Not the, not the best optics. You're Incredibly trying to hire uncomfortable. And I looked at this <laughs> like, and I thought, we're, okay. We're prisoners here. Don't come. Yeah, exactly. They, did, they, looked, they looked not just unhappy, but unsafe, right? Just their body language was screaming this. And I said, I mean, that's, that's something you've got to deal with. Like, why, why, why do these women feel this way? Because clearly something, it was every photo, both women. This, this body language in, in every case. And I, I said, you know, that's something I think you guys got to address. Um, unfortunately, I, I never did find out exactly what, what the company culture was like because it was only a couple weeks project. But, um, but you know, I, I think you really have to approach something like this as, as a true believer, so to speak, right? If you're coming at it and you're going, well, we need more women on the team because it doesn't look good that we don't have enough women on the team. No, that's yeah, not, not a good answer. You need to be coming at it from a direction, in my opinion. And I let me say up front, I am not and do not pretend to be a DEI professional. But, you know, as as a as a manager, the, the way I think about it is you need to understand why it is important to have gender diversity, what benefits and value it brings, both in a in, in a purely pragmatic outputs oriented sense, but also in a, in a social equity sense. Right. I mean, I can't speak for others, but I'm really uncomfortable with the idea that, uh, you know, my own behavior is is unfairly discriminating or or, or uh, preventing people from fair access to good opportunities. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you really need to embrace those concepts. You really you really need to be motivated by a desire to correct those two issues. Right. Or, or to take advantage of the opportunity in one case and correct the issue in the other case. Um, and then uh, the biggest thing, you know, people talk about, oh, it's so difficult, it's so hard. Well, you know, my response is generally listen more, right? There's, there's plenty of people out there who have had these experiences who can give you some ideas on, you know, how to improve, how to avoid creating, you know, bad environments, bad situations, or, you know, mimicking the same mistakes that, that have been, you know, uh, happening for, for decades in, in the professional world or, or centuries probably. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a question of having the the humility really to be willing to go out and just listen what what is wrong what is broken how do we fix it um and i think if you can do that honestly 
that's that could be steps one through three for a lot of the organizations I've been part of. Frankly, you don't you don't you know that's even before trying to hire a DEI professional or anything like that. Just just go talk to people. Listen, what are, what are the problems? What are the pain points? What can be corrected? You know, the folks experiencing this in your organization, they're going to be your best authority on how to correct the problems that are preventing you from you know improving diversity if that's really your goal. Yeah, I'm a big believer that you should hire the best person for the job. However, said that. I also believe that you go any demographic and find the best person for that job. So that's such a great point, right? People talk about hiring the best person for the job. Absolutely. I agree. But what are the odds that the best person for the job is consistently a white dude named Chris? Every single time. Right? For example. Um, yeah, exactly. And and you have to look at that and go, okay, maybe there's another problem for work here. So then my big question is always, you say you want the best person for the job. How are you evaluating that? That is inherently subjective. There's maybe a few rules. You go on the same recruiting fair in Bellevue every single time. Right. Or, you know, at an even more granular level, it, how are you evaluating the outcomes of their resume, you know, their resume, the outcome of their interview? What kinds of questions are you asking them? Right. Are they different? You know, so when you can make it as, a, and, and I think this is why there's, there's a lot of research and it hurts me to say this because I despise standardized testing, but that's found that you actually get better hiring outcomes with a standardized approach, often with, with tests that don't involve, you know, a, a human interviewer. Um, because, you know, it falls into the same pattern when you can make decisions like this, you, you know, using an algorithmic approach, a consistent objective approach, even a very simple one often outperforms a subjective, quote unquote, expert opinion. Um, and I think you see this in hiring as well. And where I think you see a really dangerous mix, right, is when you have an approach that is fundamentally subjective, because it is, um, and you pretend that it's objective, right? <laughs> You, you put you put some kind of numeric scale to it, you know, or, or some kind of an assessment protocol that breaks things down into 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 numbers. Um, it gives this veneer of objectivity, but it's false. But the problem is when you have a veneer of objectivity, you stop questioning it. Right. You go, OK, well, this person's an eight out of ten. It's been decided and therefore stamp. We're done. Right. No, that's a, that's a subjective assessment just because you've given it a number grade rather than a letter grade or a you know, a qualitative evaluation doesn't make it any less subjective. And as soon as you have subjectivity, you have room for bias. For example, myself personally, when somebody says to me that they're a good judge of character, it's an immediate warning sign. And apologies to anyone who's a good judge of character out there. But the reason it's a warning sign is because if you believe that you're a good judge of character and you make a snap decision about me, that's based fundamentally on intuition, on emotional reasoning, right? If it's not based on something objective, then that's where it's coming from which means that it could be based on inherent biases that I have no control over, right? You may have had some bad experiences with people who look like me. Maybe you grew up in a bad neighborhood that was populated largely by, by Puerto Ricans, for example, right? And, and you were scared of them. That's completely legitimate. And maybe now as an adult, you know, you don't necessarily associate that consciously because you recognize that, you know, just because some members of an ethnic group behave a certain way doesn't mean everyone in that ethnic group behaves a certain way. But your emotional mind, your subconscious mind, doesn't necessarily, hasn't internalized and digested that, right? There's, there's some really interesting, I was just reading a book called The Righteous Mind, um, really interesting book. They were talking about research where um, people have an immediate good, bad, like visceral emotional reaction to literally everything, right? And it colors their conscious assessment of that thing, person experience, whatever, afterwards in a way that they're not even you know aware of. So if you have a deep-seated subjective bias against people with darker skin tones, as, as many Americans do, frankly, probably myself included, right? This isn't saying anyone's a bad person. It's not something you have control over, but you need to be aware of it, 
So if you have that bias, that's affecting your assessment of people. If you believe yourself then to be a good judge of character, guess what? You're now less critical about your own opinion, guaranteed, right? You're not going back and questioning it because you're, if you're a good judge of character, then your judgment of character must be good, right? That's the kind of tautology that, you know, we tend to engage in mentally. And that means that, you know, people subjected to your judgment of their character have very little recourse to change your assessment, right? Because it's generally not going to be based on something practical or objective. Um, so, you know, that's why I feel like, you know, we need, if you read like uh, Daniel Kahneman or all the behavioral psychologists, he talks about our, uh, I think it's system one and system two. Basically, the distinction is between our autonomic sort of heuristic processes, right, where we evaluate something and we make a snap decision that feels good versus the more cognitively intense um, reasoning activities, what we might call it, consider more of a, a rational um, thought process, rational cognition. Um, and we typically tend not to engage in, in that kind of cognition as much. It's energy intensive. It takes more work and it takes time. Um, but in these cases where you're trying to suss out, you know, inadvertent discrimination and bias, it's very, very important, in my opinion, to be engaging that system as often as possible to constantly be questioning subjective assessments and subjective decisions and the processes by which you, receive, you, which you reach those decisions. And what gets me, it kills me all the time. Someone says, I'm a hired expert. Are you really? Like, hey, when you hired, when you have great careers, your company, right? Like yeah. you make no bad hard decisions. I'm a hard expert. I just, just, just that's uh, okay. I, I never believe that people. I heard people say that. What does that mean, right? Define your terms. What does that mean? You know, you see, there's, there's, there's a lot of research showing that um, women will, on average, apply to a job when they exceed 100 percent of the yeah. minimum requirements. And men like it's like 70 percent. Yeah, right? men like oh well, I can read. The, I, I, if I, as long as I read, I can apply for it. Exactly. And I will say personally, absolutely. If I meet about 70 percent of the minimum requirements, I'm applying to that job, assuming I want to, right? Um, and I've seen that as a hiring manager as well. And this is why, you know, I, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I think in the course of my career, I've, I've, I've definitely hired a lot more women than men. And, and this isn't out of preference or anything. It's just because I have a, I have a sort of system that I personally developed for evaluating candidates as well, as objectively as I can. Um, so I've stolen the rating system from, from founder Institute. They've got a really interesting approach for evaluating founder pitches. And then my inputs are, you know, if I'm working with a recruiter, whatever the recruiter tells me, then the person's LinkedIn and their resume. Um, and then if it's a creative role, then their portfolio as well. Um, and then what I try to do is I try to, I go through and, and I, I assign a numeric score for each of the candidates I have in front of me to each of those items. And I'll do like all the resumes first and then all the LinkedIn profiles, et cetera. I try to keep myself um, as distant from the person as possible. So, you know, if I can separate names, I'll do so. I try not to look at, you know, images like, you know, headshots or whatever. And then at the end, I go and I'll add up all the scores. And, and what I'll frequently find is that the candidate that ends up coming out, you know, as the top candidate is not the candidate that I would have selected. In fact, it's almost never the candidate that I would have subjectively selected just based on my own sort of gut reaction to their different profiles. And that candidate, I think it's safe to say roughly 90, 90 to 95% of the time is, is a, typically a woman um, because the women who apply to the roles are typically far more qualified than the men who apply to the same roles. Um, and that's just consistently been my experience across several different companies. Um, so I look at that and I go, well, if I'm hiring, you know, the best candidate for the role, I've got someone here who is approachable, open to learning, has demonstrated extremely strong expertise, has more years of experience and more, you know, quantifiable accomplishments. You know, just just it's kind of a no brainer once you once you, you, you know, you look at the resume, the accomplishments, the CV. Um, and so that's just how it's kind of panned out. Um, so, you know, when a company tells me that they hire the best, they want to hire the best person for the role. And, you know, I, I, I see a whole bunch of, you know, 
guys who all kind of look the same have, and, and I say look the same, not in terms of like physical features, but look the same in terms of their profile, right? You know, their, their history, where they went to school, maybe their age, whatever. I have to really question that, you know, I, I don't think you're hiring the person who's best for the role. I think you're hiring the person that you feel most comfortable with. Right. And that's a different thing, but that's a characteristic of that autonomic heuristic system, right? It's substituting the question being asked, who's the best person for the role, for the question that's you want to ask or the question that's easier to answer. Who's the person I'm most comfortable with, right? And I think that's what you kind of see happening in a lot of these types of hiring processes. But again, just my opinion. Yeah, you always hear people say, no, what's the, do they pass a beer test? Well, does passing a beer test make them the best person in the job? Yes. And, and exactly. what's the professor, right? You, I mean, does it matter you get along with the people you work with? Yes, maybe it does, but it's a matter more that you perform on the job, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have to get along with them, but it doesn't mean that they have to be, they have to all have to be the kind of person you want to hang out with after work with a beer, right? I mean, I, I've got plenty of friends I'd love to hang out with after work for a beer. I wouldn't necessarily want to work with those folks. Yeah. Um, I, I got plenty of friends like that. I'll have a beer with them, yeah. but I will not hire them to cut my grass. Most of this work on a startup with them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and same token, some of the best people I've worked with, you know, we, we don't, we just don't really click on a social level, right? It's not that we dislike each other. It's just like, you know, we wouldn't really particularly enjoy hanging out for two hours over a beer and having a conversation. We're just different people. We don't click that way. That's fine. But, you know, if we can work well together, if we can work effectively together, that's, that's what matters because you're talking about hiring an employee. You're not hiring a buddy, right? Um, and, and I, I think that's important. I always, I cringe a little bit when people talk about, you know, the beer test, the airport test, whatever. Because to me, that that's just, that's the height of, that's not just accepting a, a high level of sub subjectivity. It's it's actually prioritizing it, right? Yeah. And that, that to me is problematic. Especially if we're remote, remote now. Like if we're remote, does a beer test even matter at all? That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in a remote environment, what I'm hiring for, I'm looking for people who can be self-directed or autonomous, uh, people who, who like having that kind of, you know, ability to set their own schedule and set their own priorities. Um, you know, I, I talk about half joking, but with my, with my teams and direct reports that I like to describe my management style as I call it my snowplow theory of management. My idea is that as long as I'm leading teams, you know, full of these very highly capable professionals, very self-motivated professionals, which is, you know, not 100% true across the board, but I've been really fortunate in my career that those are the kinds of people that I've worked with. And I really enjoy that. Um, you know, my role is really, they, they, they've got the motivation. They know they want to accomplish, they want to achieve. My role is to set them up for success and enable them to do that. It's to clear the path, get the crap and the bureaucracy out of the way, get, make sure that they have the tools and resources they need and make sure that they're not being, you know, bogged down with minutia and, and busy work so that they can actually accomplish things. And, and essentially just, just to make sure they're pointed in the right direction on a clear path, right? And, uh, and, and be there for support and whatnot. And I've just found really, really fantastic results uh, with the teams that I've been fortunate enough to be part of um, with that approach. Um, and, you know, coupled with that, I, I have, I'm a really strong believer in the idea that people, people who are self-motivated, people who care um, about what they're doing, and I, I really think if people don't care about what they're doing, then there's a problem with the situation likely not with the person that needs to be addressed. But, um, you know, folks who are in a good situation where they're, they are motivated, um, they want to be successful, right? And if, if you give that person, if you treat them the way as though they're, they're in the position you want them to be, you give them the trust that, that you want them to, to, to deserve, uh, people rise to the occasion, right? And I, I always say, you know, I think it's probably, you know, it's got to be 90% of the time it works out. But I'll tell you, you know, I've been, leading teams for five, six years now, I haven't had a single instance where somebody has, um, 
you know, let, let down that, that sense of trust or betrayed the trust I put in them or, or let me down in terms of their, uh, you know, their drive to, to be successful. Not a single, not a single instance. Right. So Leva, let's go back to your homeschool years. Yeah. By being homeschooled, do you think you missed out anything as far as the social aspect of growing up? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you know, it was pretty isolating because also I grew up on a farm, right? So I was, I was out in the middle of the country. So I had a couple childhood friends, but, um, and my brother, but, uh, definitely, um, first couple of years of college were very challenging from a social perspective. Um, and I remember, and I've talked to my brother about this too, you know, having this surreal sense, feeling a bit like some sort of, a strange, uh, alien anthropologist, right. Observing the, uh, my peers in their natural habitat and trying to figure out how to imitate them to, uh, you know, fit in and not be a total weirdo. Um, I don't know that I quite succeeded. I'd still say I'm, I'm, I'm quite a weirdo, but I think at this point I'm pretty comfortable with that. <laughs> so Levi, after Amazon, you went to work for a company and you did a product market launch that didn't go that well. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the lessons learned and mistakes you made that you learned from to make yourself yeah, better? Yeah. Great question. So I, I joined a healthcare company, multinational healthcare company, and I, I came on board in a pretty cool role. They were looking to launch a, a consumer-facing product, consumer-facing brand, I should say, for the, the first time uh, in the U.S. And so I was basically, it was what we call like an entrepreneurial role, right? So I was setting up a team and a business unit, owned a P&L. Um, but instead of having to go solicit investment, I was basically just getting a, a budget assigned by the company. So very, very cool opportunity. Um, but I think the, ch the challenge was that coming into the company, um, the situation was a little different than how it was represented uh, before I joined. Uh, it was represented to me, you know, that basically they were just looking for someone to come on board, get the pilot going, and then they were off to the races. Um, and in reality, th there had been some initial proposals put together for this role, for, for this uh, initiative, but there wasn't the executive alignment that needed to be there at the, the upper levels to really move forward. And so some executives wanted to move forward, some were ambivalent, and some were pretty steadfastly blocking the initiative. Um, so, you know, in, in my time there, I, I, I built out a team, um, set up a turnkey pilot, had things ready to go. And, uh, literally 48 hours before we were due to launch the pilot, uh, one of the executives, uh, who I didn't know at the time was not in favor of moving forward, asked me to pause, um, you know, temporarily, uh, while we sorted a few concerns out. So I said, okay, no problem. We paused for a couple weeks and that pause turned into a month, into two months, into four months. And. Uh, you know, I was trying a, a number of different approaches to the pilot to see if, you, you know, to try, try if, if, if different uh, scale, different channels, different, uh, you know, uh, levels of, of control over the pilot, you know, in terms of like restricting participants and whatnot, if anything would, would make the executives in question a little bit more comfortable and allow us to move forward. And this wasn't having a lot of luck. And I, I finally got to the point where I thought, you know, I moved into this role as a sort of soft landing into entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, I wasn't getting to move forward and I decided I was just getting tired of spinning my wheels. And that's why I, I left to, to join the startup where I'm at now. But I think in terms of learnings, um, the biggest thing for me really would just be to put more effort into really asking the difficult questions about where where those executives were at and where the status of the program was. Right. Why wasn't it moved forward while while I was going through the interview process? What was holding things up? You know, what, what did they see the next three months looking like, the next six months? What were the big pain points or concerns around moving forward, that kind of thing? Um, that's really the same thing, honestly, that I tell any mentees that are approaching a new job is, you know, just the same kinds of questions you'd ask a hiring manager, right? Really just to kind of try and get at... The, the, the thing is, you can't ask a question that's, that's just straight 
on the nose typically. You can't say, you know, what, what do you think of this project or what have you? What you need to ask are questions that put people into a mindset uh, that's very specific. So, for example, I, I tell mentees sometimes, rather than asking someone, you know, uh, what uh, what's a great achievement in this role that I'm applying for? What does success look like in this role? You know, my suggestion is to ask a hiring manager, let's imagine it's nine months down the road and you're reflecting on my time here and I've been a really, really great employee. What have I accomplished in the last nine months that makes you feel that I was a really good hire, right? Now, it's a really convoluted way of asking the same question. But what I found in my personal experience is that that hiring manager, it's, it goes back to that system one, system two thing I was talking about, right? If I say, what does success look like? They go, oh, well, you know, you've got to, you know, execute projects to a high level. And if we're talking Amazon, right, you've got to, you know, exemplify the Amazon leadership principles. So, okay, great. But that's really generic. That doesn't help me. When you ask the question the way I just rephrased it, what I, in my experience, what I've seen is the hiring manager will stop for a moment, right? And you can see a shift into system two, right? They're thinking, they're thinking more critically now. They go, oh, okay. And then they give you a real answer. And it's usually something along the lines of, well, we have this project we're working on and these are the points we haven't been able to move forward. And if you were able to resolve this, this, and this, that would be huge, right? Boom, now as an, as an applicant, you've got, you've, got, you've got your roadmap, right? You've got a concrete set of clear objectives, hopefully, you know, that tell you if you can do this, you will be successful in this role. And that's, that's a gold mine. So I think applying that same perspective, um, going in and in the early days in the role would have been really, really helpful. Um, and really, and this is a lesson I learned doing freelance and I really should have applied it here, but you know, live and learn it's if I think it would have been really helpful if I had approached my project and the executives of the company, not as my management, but as my clients. Right. And what I mean by that, and, and you maybe have experienced this yourself, actually, Jason, um, you know, you'll often find when you work with a client, they'll say, I need X, Y, Z, Right. And you go, okay, and it's it's a deliverable, it's a thing. You go, but what are your goals? And then they'll tell you your goals and you, you, you'll go, you know what? That's not what you need if this is your goal. What you need is this, right? And it really, it, you, you have to take the time and effort to dig into the client's requirements because the one thing I've learned in, in marketing at least is what the client tells you they need and what they actually need are nearly always two different things. And I think it was the same case here, right? And I just unfortunately was going in much more with an employee mindset and not as, you know, an owner mindset which is, is uh, you can't admit that at Amazon, you'd be crucified, but <laughs> I'm safe now. <laughs> but I think that was the biggest thing, honestly. So Levi, can you tell more about, about your role with Founders Institute and what exactly what is Founders Institute? Yeah, I, I, this is one of my favorite topics, so you might have to tell me to shut up. I love Founder Institute. So Founder Institute is a pre-seed accelerator. So an accelerator is a program for startups that does exactly what it says. The idea is to basically say, okay, you don't know what you're doing. That's okay. We've looked at what startups do to be successful. We know what startups need to accomplish in their first, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120 days, whatever. So by enrolling in this program, we're going to set you on the straight and narrow and, and really kind of crack the whip, so to speak, to, to make sure it gives you sort of that, that, that peer group incentive, right. To, to stay on track, you know, get your reports in, you know, and have accomplishments that you can, you can speak to. So it's, it's very motivating in that respect in the same way that say college is motivating with grades and deadlines, you know? Um, so the idea is basically, you know, to take, take a process that could take six months to a year without guidance and condense it down into two or three months. Um, now most startups accelerators, um, focus on a particular age range of the startup, right? Pardon me. And that's right around, I would say, pre-seed up to seed. Founder Institute is one of very few, the only one that I'm aware of at this scale. 
that's um, very, very early stage. So we'll bring people in who don't have a startup. They have an idea and they want to go dip their feet in the water and figure out if a startup is right for them, all the way up to folks who are getting ready to raise their pre-seed. And that's, a, that's kind of our window. So um, Levi, can you be too late to apply for Founders Institute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're at a point where you've got several employees and maybe, you know, you've already raised some, some substantial capital, maybe you're raising a seed round and you've already raised pre-seed, there's a good chance there are exceptions, but there's a good chance you might actually be too, too mature for Founder Institute, at which point we maintain, you know, strong relationships and networks with other uh, startup related organizations, investors, whatnot. So here in Seattle, for example, we'll often refer people to uh, uh, Techstars, which is excellent accelerator. A lot of our top graduates will actually go into Techstars right after because the two programs mesh really well. We are very much, if a program, if a, if a startup, excuse me, is is really appropriate for Founder Institute, they are not ready for Techstars. If they're appropriate for Techstars, they're too mature for Founder Institute. There's really no overlap. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's really great. You know, in our case, if a, if a startup is, is too mature for us, not really a problem. There's a, there's a wealth of resources available for them, right? If they're appropriate for us, there aren't that many. There, aren't, there just aren't that many resources available. One of the reasons, the big reasons I joined FI and I've stayed involved with it for so long is just because the organization is really well run. It's very organized. It's very professional. Um, things are very standardized. It's also got a really strong focus, even though it's very much, you know, an accelerator for venture backed or ideally soon to be venture backed startups, right? Profit motivated. It's got a really strong social impact aspect as well. Um, startups are asked, for example, to align their uh, models and, and products with uh, some of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as part of the application process. Um, you know, and there's, there's a very strong ethos of, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion and social impact throughout the program, which is something I appreciate a deal. Um, but overall, just, just the, the execution of it, the organization, the kinds of mentors that we get in, it's just, it's, everything is held to a very high standard, which I really, really enjoy. Um, so, you know, super cool. And getting to work with startups at that early stage, uh, for me, frankly, is one of the most rewarding parts of my career. It's so much fun because you're working with people who have deep expertise in whatever they're doing, typically. Um, need a lot of help in other areas, which is, is fine. Uh, I mean, it's great, right? That's, that's why we're there. And uh, they're really passionate about what they're doing, right? Like, that's why they're in this space. They, they've got something that they are excited about. And that level of excitement and passion is just, it's contagious in the best possible way. You know, it's incredibly energizing to work in that environment. Um, so I love it. And, and on top of that, like the, the founders themselves are really cool people, you know, like from all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of experiences. What they have in common is that they are driven, very intelligent, very capable and have deep levels of expertise in, you know, whatever subject matter area that they're they're trying to move forward in. And so I, I always kind of laugh at the end of a cohort because I'll have a couple founders who will, you know, I've just clicked really well with who maybe needed the marketing experience, which is my forte. You know, and they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, thank you so much for the help and blah, blah, blah. You know, we've learned so much. And I always kind of laugh because I'm like, invariably, I always feel like I've walked away learning way more from our founders than anything. I've, I always feel kind of guilty. Like they've, they've given a lot more to me than I've contributed. I know it's a little bit uh, cliche to say that, but it's genuinely true. You, you can't sit in an environment of, you know, 10 to 20, you know, brilliant, motivated experts in their field and not walk away with a lot more than you started with, you know? So I know what accelerators like Techstars, Y Combinator, they give you like a certain amount of money to, to take equity, but Founder Institute has a different method for that, right? A little bit, yeah. So there is there is a fee for the program, although we offer a lot of fellowships and scholarships because the, the idea here, and this is something I believe really strongly in, is that 
you know, th that's all for basically uh, the operational costs of running a program. What we really want it to be as accessible as possible. Um, and so if someone's coming forward, you know, and, and they can't afford it, we really, at least in the Seattle chapter, we really bend over backwards to try and make it work if we can. Um, that, that's something that's really important. And so you said Seattle chapter. So there's like chapters across the United States, across the world. Across the world. Uh, we've got, I think there's something like 200 chapters now globally. Um, yeah, all around the world. Super cool, which is another cool benefit, right? I've got networks now and you know, Senegal, Lebanon, China, um, all through Europe, all through the U.S., North America, Latin America, right? Just through Founder Institute. And then East Cohort cool. actually gives up like 1% of the company to everyone else in the cohort, correct? Yeah, so it's, uh, so they just changed the equity model and I have to, I know there's less equity. I think it's 2.5% now for the program. It used to be 4%. Um, and so I, I think broadly the model is pretty comparable. I have to confess I'm not super familiar with it yet because we haven't run a co. My, my, our chapter in Seattle hasn't run a cohort since they changed the model. So I haven't really dived into the details, but the previous model, it was 4%, but it's not given up front. The, the, it's about two thirds of the way through the program was when companies then committed to the equity component and they could choose to drop out at that point if they didn't want to commit to the equity component. Again, I know that the timeline here in the process has changed, but just to give you an idea of the kind of the thinking behind it. And then that 4%, some portion, I think it was 1% 1, 1 goes back to Founder Institute as part of like, you know, operational costs. 1% uh, goes to the local leadership team. So that would be, you know, myself and my colleagues. Uh, then 1% went to um, the mentors. I think I have these numbers right. Big apologies if I don't. But like I said, it's changed anyway, so I guess it's irrelevant. Anyway, the remaining portion then uh, went to a pool, which is then divided among all the founders in the cohort who graduate. So you're giving up a portion of your equity, but you're you're buying it. Well, not buying it, but you're gaining a share of a pool that includes equity from all so, of your So you hope you have some high qualified core members with your Absolutely. cohort. Absolutely. But what I really love about it is what it does is it incentivizes the local leadership team because we now hold an equity stake in your business. Um, it incentivizes the mentors because they now hold an equity stake in your business. So, to, you know, to keep keep involved after after graduation. But what's really cool about it is it really incentivizes your cohort to stay together because now you all have a literal, you're literally invested in one another's success. Um, and one of the things I've heard from a lot of graduates is that, you know, a few months after they go, you know, I'm so glad for that, that component, the share among the, the cohort, because it just, it really maintains that cohesiveness, you know, um, that, that's definitely something we really want to foster. So one of the priorities um, I know that HQ has been talking about, it's certainly a priority for myself, is improving our ability over the course of this next year or two uh, to really um, uh, maintain the, the FI network globally for, for our alumna, alum, alumni, right? alumni, excuse me, alumni, um, for our alumni, for our mentors, for investors, um, so that, uh, you know, it's, it's, as you look at accelerators like uh, Techstars, for example, and they've got an entire, you know, uh, uh, platform for networking, right? You, you create an account, once you graduate, you sign into it, and you can access all kinds of resources. And we don't have anything quite as formal yet. It's, it's more informal. So starting to build that out, I think, is, is going to be one of the top priorities going forward. So that's a value and we both know robert wright i believe right yeah yeah Robert's and, and, and you know kenneth deese kenneth dykes I don't she, she, her company was give so. space she the founder institute oh candace, candace yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i know candace really well yeah she's wonderful so i, I know just them. talking to her the other day actually so i never went through the institute founder institute but they went through i know other people went through and basically i'll say the same thing like it's, it's not a joke right like you yeah. can't be mentally weak you gotta come you, you, you fit together right yeah like of course not gonna be rude or unprofessional but 
if your pitch is like kind of bad, you're going to be told it's kind of bad, right? So it's, yeah. not, it's not for the weak minded, right? Can you yeah. talk about that somehow? Like you actually tell people, no, maybe this isn't for you. And, and I think a lot of people need to hear that. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a fine tight rope to walk, right? We, we don't want to, we're never going to like, you know, kick someone out for not having a great pitch or something. If they're not doing the work, we're going to have a chat with them, right? If you don't complete the assignments and everything, you, you're not going to be allowed to graduate. Um, it really wouldn't be fair to the founders who did put in the work, right? Um, and also means you're not getting anything out of the program. But, you know, if someone's really putting in the effort and they're trying, we're, we're going to bend over backwards to support them. I mean, Jeremy, my, my colleague and myself and Lainey, my other colleague helping run this chapter, you know, we'll have, we all have stories of, you know, two hour calls with founders being up till 10 o'clock at night, helping someone go over their pitch again and again, because they're going to be talking to an investor tomorrow. Right. Like it's very much a labor of love. Right. Um, and we really, and this is not, so people know, this is not your full time job. This is like your volunteer. No, this like, is like, fun. Like, yeah. So there, there is a small stipend associated, um, to the local leaders, uh, I actually forget. It's like a, a few hundred dollars it comes out to for the entire 14 week term. It's not, not why you're doing it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it really is, it really is for fun. And, and of course the equity stake is like, these are such early stage companies. The majority are going to go through so many iterations. They might not be the same company. Many of them, the founders say, and th this is actually what I was referencing about a tightrope walk. We're getting, we're getting founders in at such an early stage that a lot of these founders, they're really using FI and we encourage this to decide if, if this is even the right path for them right now. So what we don't want to do is make it difficult for someone to leave the program, right? If you get a few weeks in and you go, you know what, I can't balance this, these requirements. This is a lot of intensity. Many, many founders will say, uh, I still want to do this, but now is not the right time for me. You know, I just had a kid or whatever. I just started a new job. I thought I could do both, but now I'm feeling it's not right. A few cases will have founders go, you know what, my idea is not good. I'm going to go back and rework it and come back later. But in any of those cases, we want to make it super easy. And so typically what we do, the, there's a very generous refund for the, there's a thousand dollar course fee, 800 if they sign up early. And like I said, lots of fellowships and whatnot available. But several weeks in, you can still get a full refund if you leave. And even after that, at any point, if you leave, even if you don't get a refund, you don't have to pay to re-enroll in, in the future. So we really want to make it very, very easy for people to uh, to drop out if they feel it's not right for them. You know, and, and you see this in the cohorts, like we'll typically start with 20, 24 people and maybe see six six startups graduate that, that's a pretty successful term um for us and you know that's that's really to be expected they're all very very early stage um so you know at the same time we want people to feel supported and encouraged and we want them to stay in the program right we just don't want to make it difficult for them to leave if they decide it's not right for them so average cohort starts with 25 and we're six the 19 leave like, like self-selected leave or you tell them you might want to leave how's that work I, I've been doing this, what, I think three, four years now. I have not had a single founder that we've pushed out ever. Um, you know, we'll occasionally have to send a slightly strongly worded note to say, hey, you've got three weeks of homework over two, and if you don't get it together, we can't graduate you. We've had a couple of those. But um, we've never actually, you know, had to tell someone they couldn't, can, or at least not since I've been here, we've, we've never told someone that, that they couldn't. So, Levi, when someone graduates, what's the benefit of someone graduating? What are the, what's the advantage of that? So, like I mentioned, we've got, you know, networks of investors and, and advisors and whatnot. So, that, you know, having successfully completed an FI chapter, um, an FI program, I should say, is definitely, you know, feather in your cap. It adds some legitimacy. Uh, there's also the benefit that going through the entirety of the program means that you've developed strong relationships with a lot of mentors. In many cases, many of those mentors become the first members of your advisory board. Um, you know, like I said earlier, at the end of every cohort, I have a couple startups that will ask me to join an advisory board if we clicked really well. Um, so that's really powerful. You now have access to the FI network, even though it's not as, you know, 
formalized as some of the other accelerators, like I was mentioning, it, it still is something that exists and there are resources available, you know, to take advantage of that. Um, we also have now, uh, FI has, has sort of hived off a separate organization um, to run a very similar program for launching new venture capital funds. Um, and so, of course, there's an obvious, you know, relationship and synergy there. So you gain access to a lot of those folks, too. Those is that the loyal VC? VC? A loyal VC is a separate thing. Uh, this okay. is a we'll VC talk about that later then. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about loyal as well. Um, but uh, but loyal would be a great example of, you know, part of that network that you do gain access to. And loyal, because of their model, and this is their decision, they're not, you know, um, they're, they're not affiliated at like a corporate level with FI. It's, it's purely, you know, sort of a partnership thing. But um, you know, their primary deal flow is coming from FI. So as a graduate, you now become eligible for, for their fund, for example, uh, according to their own policies. Um, so, you know, a lot of benefits in that respect, I would say. Um, and then, of course, there's other programs that FI offers. There's the Funding Lab, for example, which is a, I think it's a one-week program. I've heard from a lot of people that it's incredibly intense. Um, but that's for folks, you know, getting ready to kind of start seeking institutional funding to, as, a, as a kind of a, a boot camp to get them ready for that. Um, you know, so there's different resources like that that are available. But I would say ultimately, you know, the, the core benefit really ought to be the learning that you get out of the program itself. And really everything else is, is kind of coming after that. And you'll actually type the application for the next cohort pretty soon, aren't you? Yeah, I think, I think applications are open now. We're actually starting to run recruiting events already. We have March 30th, we have an event coming up. Um, and uh, then we have another one April 16th, I want to say. You can go to fi.co. Um, just make sure your location is set to Seattle in the upper right-hand corner, and you can see all the events coming up. And then my colleagues, Jeremy, Laney, and myself, you know, share it on LinkedIn all the time as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, the March 30th one coming up, I think, promises to be pretty good. We're going to have some investors and founders on the panel, you know, sharing some advice uh, about their own experiences and advice for new founders. So in the past, what, how many average applications have you had for a cohort? Oh, gosh. Um in terms of overall applications, you know, honestly, it varies really wildly. It's 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 hard to say average because of COVID kind of throwing a wrench in the works. Because like for some of the cohorts, as they were virtual, we were admitting anyone from around the world. So obviously that expands your pool. So definitely in the neighborhood of a few dozen applications at a minimum, I would say. And then typically we see around, like I said earlier, maybe 20-ish uh, founders accepted into a cohort. Um, and then just because, you know, Jeremy, Laney, and myself are the three on the local team here. We don't like to go too, too much bigger than that because, you know. Is the all three decide who gets in, so to speak? Uh, it's, it's in close partnership with HQ. So the okay. process is run through FIHQ as well. So we have a, they, they'll develop an opinion and they'll do like a first screen. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole, uh, you know, application process and like a, a personality test that the, the founders will take. And so there's certain things there that can just immediately kind of red flag and people will get filtered out right off the bat. Um, and then, uh, after that, that's the, that's the point. Once that first, first sort of course filter has happened, that's, that's usually when, you know, we come in as a local team and start to kind of mm -hmm. have more of a, a direct involvement in the application or the admissions process. Yeah. And then, so your early stage, is there like a sweet spot? Like there's like a perfect startup, like they have a certain amount of traction, certain amount of technical skills. Like there's like some kind of sweet spot that, you that you're looking for. Um, I'd say... We're more looking to make sure the startup isn't too mature, to okay. be honest, because um, there is a certain point, you know, where and those folks will usually churn out. But ultimately, it, it kind of, you know, they're kind of walking away going, oh, this is a waste of our time if that happens. Right. Yeah. So we really want to avoid that happening. That's the biggest thing. Um, there isn't really such a thing as too early. 
right? Like I said earlier, this is very true. We, we, we typically, any cohort, we have at least a couple people coming in that where they're, they're literally like, I have not quit my job. I do not have a corporation set up. I have an idea and I want to see how this goes, right? And that's it. And that's great, right? We welcome that. Um, in the past couple of years, we've developed two different tracks. Um, there's the growth track and the, oh gosh, I can't remember what the other one's called. <laughs> but basically the idea is that one, one track, founders enrolled in one track, they get the assignments are slightly tweaked and it's really more for startups that are like ha absolute starting from zero. And then the other the other track is really more for startups that are, you know, have started to do a little bit, started to make an effort, maybe done some customer discovery, maybe they even have a beta of their product, whatever. And they're really thinking more about, you know, kind of step two, mm -hmm. so to speak. Anyone past that point, we're probably going to be referring to them to another accelerator that's more suitable for their where they're at. Um, I will say that, you know, coming in, you definitely want to come in with some expectation of the workload that's going to be required and be prepared to dedicate the time 